podcast, Limitless Between the Jason Horsley, Kate Ledegar, Michelle Horsley, talking about Jesus and the crypto matriarchy. start with Jesus and progressive versus Catholic upbringing. Uh-huh. That sounds, that sounds good. Uh-huh. Sounds like a good place to start. That's so rich territory. So Jason and I both grew up in very progressive, liberal, atheist households. Mm-hmm. Which actively, is- actively, specifically atheist or agnostic? Uh, more agnostic in my case. Um, and Jason's, I think, was atheist, quite stringent. But my my mother used to say, uh, when you grow up, you can decide what religion you want to, if you want a religion, whatever, like, but as a child, no, but when you're an adult, you can decide. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in a, um, my parents divorced when I was five. And my father, who I did not live with, but um, I visited with him he uh he was the catholic and he was a very um a very devout or catholicism uh really informed his morality and was uh an important important in that way to him but um my mother excuse me just sneeze <laughs> sorry my mother um was very agnostic and she actually despised or organized religion which uh you know probably had something to do with the state of the relationship with between her and my father at that time you know just uh was part of a rejection of him i'd imagine but also my brother who was nine years older than i was in the household as well growing up and he had very strong opinions and still does now he despises despise actively despises organized religion especially catholicism and um is uh outspoken about it and gets um just gets very uh i don't want to say emotional but it's very important and strong views so i didn't I only grew up in a Catholic household in the sense that there is my father in the background and certain terms of their separation agreement for the divorce that stipulated that I had to um, go to Catholic school, which I did until fifth grade when the quality of the school was just so obviously, you know, in that school's case, so obviously terrible that um, it would not have made any sense for me to stay there regardless. So, but I have definitely a, um, I, in that way, I grew up with a 
view to religious education, Catholic religious education, coupled with um, the skepticism from a very early age about whatever I was learning. Not that I was told, you know, that's a bunch of BS. Um, I wasn't actively told that, but I was, it was not, what I was learning was not reinforced at home, the home that I lived in. Mm -hmm. So you were uh, set up in a perfect position to critique. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, to critique the religion, I, I was not critiquing the skepticism so much. Yeah, I, don't, I don't even know what that would have meant at that time, but um, it was, uh, I was, I, I had, a, I think I absorbed the, the, the moral um, lessons of being a good person. I mean, that was, that resonated very much with me. Anything that I heard about that would have been equivalent of messages in a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, just, you know, what did it sacrifice, self-sacrifice, um, just feeling, helping the poor. I, I mean, I'd say, and I, I do feel that um, that sort of, uh, viewpoint is probably useful for a child in order to get a bit of a grounding just in how you should think of yourself in relation to the community and the world. Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back in my childhood and uh, it was like there, there were no morals. <laughs> it was wide open. Uh, maybe, although there was only one, which is don't, don't lie. Don't lie to mom, basically. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, is that progressive? Uh, maybe you had it with your mom's side of your parent, parental equation, um, that it was more focused on liberation and freedom and make it all yourself and not so, my, because my, I came, I was the last of five children and my mother was born in 1929. And so she had, um, I was born into a household that was really more of a traditional kind of 50s, 60s household, although I was born in 1972. So um, that was, I, not that it was, um, it wasn't, uh, what would you say? I mean, it, it was liberal in a sense, but it was also, it was traditional. Um, not extremely so, but it, it was, I, we did not have a sense of, okay, here's, you don't lie, but other than that, you find your own moral compass. No, you, we, from both parents, I, from an early age was provided with a, a moral compass. That was not a process of discovery. And I definitely, I, from parenting my, from my own parenting that I do, and also knowing other parents, you know, I have experience with people who um, 
approach it that way. You know, that even to the point of um, not saying, ever saying no to their child, you know, and also uh, reasoning with the child from a very young age, explaining everything. Um, but I'm not, um, I like the theory of that. I, th I think the theory of that is very good. However, I've seen in a couple of people I know, one who's a friend of mine, contemporary, who was raised like that, and another is um, a, a parent who's raising a child like that. I've seen a certain tendency toward passive aggression in terms of using that as a way to get one's way. I've seen that acted out actually in two adults and adolescents who are raised in that way. And I don't know if that's the only possible outcome of that kind of, uh, you know, um, bringing up. But I think, I think that if you're, it's possible that if you are raised in a situation where a parent never shows anger, but always, um, always relies on reason to, um, to kind of present you with the option of, well, you can do the thing that we're not going to call bad because we don't use labels, or you can do the thing that we're not going to call good because we don't use labels. <laughs> and that's your choice. And I am hoping that you will choose what is, I don't know, just, you know, you, you raise the child, giving them the tools to make a choice that's beneficial. However, hope, huh? You hope, you hope, but in the people and the people, the two adults who I know who were raised like this, I mean, they're lovely and they do have more good, what I would consider to be good morals, good ethics. However, each of them shows a tendency toward when they get in a corner and it comes down to something and these are a few cases specifically, or two cases anyway, specifically that um, I've, I can think of when they're backed into a corner and it comes to something they really want for themselves, but it is obvious that that would be a selfish, um, I have to let Ginger in or she'll bark, that that would be a selfish um, demand, right? They could not reasonably argue for the rightness of their getting their way. You know, there, there wouldn't be, they wouldn't have an argument. It's just like they really want it. In each case, they've um, resorted to passive aggression to get to deception. Um, and so, and I've attributed that to, uh, to that way of raising a child that's not the worst thing in the world. It was just, it's just interesting to me that, um, you know, at a certain point, I think the lesson of growing up that you can't express anger. You can't, you can't express the, uh, what would I might consider the natural, tendencies of human imperfection 
you have to always kind of put on, um, put a control on that. I don't know if that's. Um, that's like being hyper-socialized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And as I say, it's not the worst thing. It's not, it's certainly not the worst way to raise a child, but maybe there's a way that it could be modified or something. You know, I certainly know it's not good to lose control and always be in the state of being completely in your emotions when interacting and then teaching that by example. But there is something with being too controlled. You know, so bringing that back to religion, growing up with Catholicism, you know, you say you had don't lie as your only firm rule. It made me immediately think of um, of the Ten Commandments. And that, that was a very early, very resonant, um, very resonant lesson. But it's, uh, you know, you have 10 literal commandments that you, that guide you, you know, to be just, I mean, those are the rules. Those are the rules for how you live. Yeah. And don't lie is one of them, I believe. It's, um, you know, um, Girardian, the Girardian frame, framing of um, the Ten Commandments is because of mimetic violence. Mimetic violence? Yeah, the potential for mimetic violence. So people needed to have rules to, um, to uh, uh, minimize the possibility of mimet outbreaks of mimetic violence. So don't cover, cover, covet thy neighbor's wife, for example. That's directly related to mimetic violence. So are you mimetic violence being that if you see that behavior exhibited, you're going to do it too? Yes. Violence is contagious. Yeah. And so the Ten Commandments being rules to say, okay, well, people are going to catch this contagion, but we're going to make a rule to put a block. That's right. A block on it. What do you think of that? What do you think of that uh, method of, con of oh, I think crowd control? So, so this is this gets to the story of Jesus, um, because according to Gerard, Jesus took the Western civilization to the next level, which is to a place where we can recognize that the person being scapegoated is innocent, because before Jesus we didn't have a word for victim. The person who scapegoated was seen as guilty, but after Jesus we could see that the scapegoat was innocent. And that put a larger sort of psychological block on mimetic, uh, the potential for mimetic violence, um, because we then could see like, oh, <laughs> if I join the mob and beating up this person, this person might be innocent, right? But before that, we needed the rules because we didn't have that mechanism. So that, that was the gift of Jesus. That's the importance of the Jesus story, as I understand it. Are you saying the Ten, Command Ten Commandments came before Jesus? Yeah, I think they're Old Testament, aren't they? Okay, yeah. So, so before Jesus, you know, Catholic upbringing hasn't extended to any kind of knowledge of the Bible, apparently. No, I, I know, but it all comes as one piece: the Old Testament and New Testament. And I just uh, think of it as volumes of a book rather than a span of time, which, of course, it was. You know, so yes, the Old oh. Testament existed before the year that Jesus was born. 
thousands of years, possibly, because yeah. it's um, probably oral tradition. And that's also the Jewish Bible, the Quran. Yeah. The Torah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jason's better at this stuff. So, And that, that brings me to another point, which is that because Jason and I, neither one of us grew up with Christianity, we don't have any barriers to exploring all this stuff. And so both of us have like looked into like, what, what does this mean? Like these ancient stories. And even I've had friends who were like oh, this, my friend Jane in Edmonton was psychic and she was in touch or so she claimed with um, Christ energy and something was happening. So I became really curious about what that might be, for example. Um, yeah, so so we were talking about this the other night and how fortunate we feel that actually this body of knowledge or way of understanding the world is so open to us because we don't we didn't grow up with it, so we don't have defenses against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. I certainly have. Um, I think I tend to not be able to separate it as a. Um, as a story or a myth or something that is something that has come from humans over time. And that regardless of whether or not it has a, an, a real, uh, what would you call it? A, a, whether the source of it is something divine, regardless of, whether there's an actual divinity that informs the Bible, it is at the very, at the very, very least a, um, a record of our, our human, human ways, the ways of our mind and heart and psychological development too. Yeah. So, and I don't know if, Rene Girard was a um, a believer, or a he converted. Spiritual. Yeah, he was a postmodernist who converted to Catholicism. Oh, that's interesting, huh? Huh? He, yeah, he learned so much about it, he took it seriously. Wow. Huh. I've um. I I've met a lot of um, a lot of Christians recently because of homeschooling. And there, there's a large Christian homeschooling community. Um, and I, I don't think I would be meeting these people otherwise. So that's been, that's been very, very interesting. Um, but I've had such enlightening conversations about other people's belief. And particularly one where one family who's just just this incredible family they have six children and they're i mean you just see the love between these children and they're they're wholesome without being uh silly about it you know they're and they're free to be expressive i mean they just and the the parents are wonderful it's just there's just honesty and clarity coming out in this family and the parents i think both the parents but um the father anyway because i spoke to him about this are strict um 
what's the word? There, there is some term for it. Uh, they translate, they take the words of the Bible literally, right? Literalists or something. So when, when, and the, and these are the people who are generally totally lampooned or um, dismissed by is primarily, I think, liberal progressive thought. You know, these are the people who are the creationists mm -hmm. and who say that the, the world was literally created, what was it? I mean, 4,000 or 40,000 years ago or something. There's some, there's some number that is just flies so, com I, I, I think it claims that the world is not even old enough to have um, housed the dinosaurs or something. Well, you know, it's, I don't, I don't think I have the number right, but it's, um, yeah. it is exactly. whatever it is, it does not jibe with contemporary science in any way. And so, but I was talking to him, yeah, he's really intelligent. And, and I said, so, you know, you think do you, when you hear that the world is this many years old, do you sort of think that years were a different time span? And he said, no. He said, I, I'm a simple man. I, I do not pretend to be able to interpret what the Bible says. I take it completely at its word, directly at its word. And I see it as a transmission of God. He sees the Bible and the words of the Bible. He said, whatever's written however it was written by whomever it was written, it is still a transmission of divine energy. And in taking that in, he is connecting with God. And he's not going to complicate it by interpreting it or questioning it. He's just going to take it directly as it comes. <clears throat> and what I took from that with him is that the value of it, of the Bible and the words of the Bible is, is the connection, is the connection with divine energy. Yeah, it's the transfer. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, hmm, that kind of sounds familiar there, right? And he might even use the word transmission. And it really, um, it really made me, think, huh, you know, I have no idea what other people are experiencing when they're experiencing their religion, their spirituality. And you can take it and explain it and have it just sound ludicrous. But, um, but that's, that's ignorance too. Yeah, to be. it sure is. That's like a, the, the postmodernist approach to texts, but text yeah deconstructed yes yeah I, I suppose it's all very postmodern I mean that is maybe the state of your typical liberal academic viewpoint which is certainly how I was raised in terms of um, how I was educated and you probably and Jason as well I would think Jason, not so much because he's an autodidact, but I went to art school, so I got a pretty good liberal arts education there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did so? How did this start? As you started this out with um with Jesus, I think. Did, uh, Jesus. What's that? And, and so one of the things that Jason and I were talking about recently is is um because there's this an assumption. Oh, well, I grew up and live. Uh, my life basically amongst liberal progressives, like very progressives, activist types. And, um, and uh, uh, Christians always got a lot of criticism. In fact, sometimes very, like very strong hostility to anybody Christian or anything Christian, but the progressives always get a pass and they're seen as like positive parents and that they're doing good in the world. And they, in my experience, there is no investigation into what's really going on. But Jason and I have the experience of growing up with very early progressives. Like my father worked for the um, the NDP, the Socialist Party in Canada, when it was just formed. Like very, very progressive. He was a jazz musician. and They hung out with artists and et cetera, et cetera. I valued like culture and, and arts above anything else really like it's not about money you just go out and make beautiful things that sort of thing but but this environment of like it's all good included things like well incest is okay like incest is fine it doesn't hurt you Uh, kids should be should learn about sex as early as possible Um, pedophilia well that's just a different sexual orientation like like seriously like like the were you given messages like that? Constantly. Was that direct or is that interpreted? Direct. From at what? I mean, from a very young age, you were. Oh yes. Yeah. So when I was seven, my mom used to say, "Oh, you're so sexy. Like you, like men just love you. You're so sexy and stuff like that." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So nobody's ever asked me like, "Oh, do you like what was it like growing up in a progressive, like a very progressive household?" so we this is i just realized this the other night talking to jason like oh yeah so we we hang out with all these progressives and there's an assumption that it's the right side of history or the good stuff is there but actually there's a problem with wide open no morals no boundaries anything's possible it's all good you see yeah i and i and this is where the cognitive dissonance, or I don't know, is maybe the cognitive being dissonant with the heart or something like that, or the or the gut comes in for me, that I have such a strong feeling of, yes, that is, you know, the right side of history, or it, it's that it's evolution, right? The, oh, this is where we've evolved to, you know, we're now uh enlightened enough to understand that everything is allowed and free and okay of course you know not as long as it as long as it's not certain things because of course not everything is actually allowed underneath that those banners either sure like racism isn't allowed or homophobia is not allowed well yeah or or at least the expression of those things Right. So there are rules. And so there are rules about certain things that are very wide open. I, you know, I, I wonder, 
I guess you see it played out in culture because everything is so sexualized oh, from a young age. What's that? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like even the gay pride parades have turned into like kink festivals, like kink pride, for example. Right. But I have that cognitive dissonance too, Kate, where I'm like, I am progressive. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm cool and et cetera. But yeah, so I have that too. So this is, and I don't think that necessarily you, you don't have to throw the huge tub full of babies out with the dirty bathwater you know, there are all sorts of things that are good about a quote unquote progressive point of view. However, there are, and you know, I come, so I come to the, I come to this with, um, with the group of uh, Christian families that I now know. And I have not directly discussed this because there's a little bit of a fear of um, you know, what beliefs actually are, but I think about, um, you know, what, so they're raising children and what if one of those children is attracted to their same sex growing up, you know, will they be, uh, will they be told that that is not allowed? Will that, will a rule be made around that? You know, so I guess what I, ah, it's, it is hard because the no rules, there are very, there are problems with that. And there is definitely a very strong good use to creating boundaries and creating a roadmap for one's brood. And I think that's what I see acted out in this family. They have the six children. They probably have a very strong sense of what is um, considered to be good and what is not, what is considered to be something to avoid. And I think that probably serves them very well and adds to the health and fitness of that family. However, and I've also seen acted out in families where everything is allowed, the kids just falling apart but it's so it's so difficult because I still like I'm so opposed in some deep way to having anything be well not anything be a no but to having too much of a structure of something proscribed right isn't is that the word when you proscribe something? Yeah, it depends what you mean. Um, proscribed is forbidden and prescribed is prescribed. Yeah, so mostly with the proscribed things because growing up with a Catholicism, you know, there are certain things that are, that are forbidden. And for, for instance, my father, had, he, he would be prone to... Um, fits of anger and then angry um, lectures. And one, one thing that really set him off, I wore 
I was a fan of Duran Duran at the time. And there is a certain type of hat, a fedora that John Taylor wore. And so because I was in love with John Taylor, I wore a fedora like John Taylor. So my father sees this and is starts to like, the tour that this is the most, thankfully the most violent physically that I ever saw my father, my father <clears throat> tore the lining out of that, out of the fedora and started lecturing me about lesbians, you know, and this is a lesbian hat. And, uh, you know, I was probably, I was probably 11 at the time. I hardly knew what he was talking about. And, and it was, it was ironic since it, I was wearing it because I was very attracted to the man that wore the hat on stage. That's, that's also mimesis. What that mimesis in turn, my, yeah. Oh yeah, right. he liked him. He, he was your right. distant model. And so you were, or imitating him. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so yeah, but culture, that's, that's pop culture, is designed to do that exact thing. So when he said lesbians, it's like the culture is already set up to oppose his values. His, his, if you're Catholic, you can't get divorced. So he's in a situation where his wife has left the faith. He yeah. can never be right with his religion again. Right. Yes. That's, that's a very astute observation. Right. So he's screwed. He's not going to go to heaven. There's nothing he can do. And well, no, they did, they did some kind of a thing where you, um, they, he uh, had a, what's it called? Not an absolution, an annulment. So he was allowed an annulment. So that's quite remarkable. Yeah. Paid, paid, and paid for an annulment. Moment. Like, you know, I mean, he went through that process, which mom just totally cemented for her and for my brother cemented. It just went through down the bullshit toilet. Like, oh, okay. You know, so this marriage never happened, right? This is uh, it completely um, justified everything that either of them had ever thought about uh, the religion in the first place. And then, you know, any, pretty much any religion in that way. So, so, it, so it's interesting to me to see both the, all the, all of the unfortunate ways that religious belief can result in human behavior, whether that's mundane or just kind of self-limiting or violent and killing other populations versus the ways that religious belief can uh, truly, and I mean, the most, the most conservative religious belief, the strict, strict translation of the Bible can be a conduit to connection with the, the divine it's um it's con it's confusing
It is confusing. Yeah. So the other thing about the Bible is um, I, I'm with Rani Girard on this. I don't think we can understand ourselves in our present culture in the West without understanding the Bible because the story of Jesus gave us the idea of a victim. And now we're in a culture where um, victim victimhood uh, grants you high status. Like there's a huge drive to protect victims and to protect people from being victimized. And that's from Christianity. And, and you can tell because that's not in Islam. They don't have that in Islam. And they don't have that in Judaism either. It's a Christian um, phenomenon that's made us who we are in this world. And, and yet it's... Um, like a hidden history it's totally denied we don't see it we don't see the influence of christianity on our progressive tolerance for others and difference i there's uh, and this definitely gets into strange territory but i think that there is something in um because this is something that i've always felt very much myself and, and you as well, I think, Michelle, you have a background in indigenous rights, right? And I think that that would seem to me to be an instinct to protect. What, do you see that as an instinct to protect victims or something else? Oh, you mean my activism? I'd say it's more fundamental than that, but yes. So um, this a couple levels is a personal psychological level is basically like wanting to protect vulnerable people because I needed to be protected as a vulnerable person. I saw a lot of activists acting that out um, unconsciously externalizing an internal thing. And the other thing is we as human beings, maybe I think it might be universal. I don't know. We have an innate sense of uh, justice and rightness and wrongness and fairness like bats have an innate sense of fairness. I don't know if you heard the story about the bats. So if you if if you capture a few bats when they're flying back into the cave at the end of the night with the um, their blood sacks full of blood to feed to the babies. So if you capture a few of them, drain their blood sacks so they don't have any blood to share with all the babies because the the bats share the blood all around with all of the babies. So all Yes, they're vampire bats. Uh, and uh, those bats that, if you empty their blood sacs, um, they don't have blood to share with all the babies. The other bats won't feed their babies. With the other bats back in the cage? Back in the cage. When they fly back into their cave at the end of the night, mm-hmm. bats go around, they give a little bit of blood to each of the babies. But the ones that you caught and you took their blood out, they don't have blood to share. The other bats don't know this, but what they see is a bat that's not sharing blood. Okay. The babies of those bats don't get neglected. They don't get fed by the other bats. Wow. So it's a sense of fairness, but not a sense of pity. They don't. <laughs> they don't say, "Okay, we're good. these poor babies. Their parents are." That, it's, wow. It's kind of hard justice in the bat cave. It's essential that we have that sense, though, of fairness. Otherwise, things go to hell really quickly. Yeah. 
yeah, everybody would suffer in a, it's, ah, gosh, huh? Yeah. So if that's innate in some way. Yeah. So I think that was part of what was driving me too. I just saw an injustice that was so wrong. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't not get involved. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it gets very complicated very quickly. And then different, um, different causes get uh, questioned. I, I had um, a parting of ways with who somebody who had been a close friend of mine. And she took offense at um, my uh, my criticism of Israeli occupation in Palestine. And so she um, she said, how could I as a landowner in the United States criticize anyone ever when this is never, you know, this is not the white person's land, essentially. Yeah, I used to hold views like that, Kate. Well, and I thought on the one hand, well, yes. However, I am not, I'm talking about something that is an active, an active attempt to take more land from Palestinians right now. And if anybody in the United States were actively trying to take more land from the paltry amount that indigenous people have here, I would be, I would be up in arms about that as well. So in a way it was not quite apples and oranges that were being argued, but I think it was, there is a different quality in terms of, you know, but so, the the thing is, if you're right now, it's come to the point where you can't even point to something that you feel is an injustice without getting um, without getting rejected for your own uh, um, genetic background, or you know that okay, you can't you can't say anything because your forebears did much worse. And, and so at what point does the whole argument fall apart then? I mean, you don't have to go back too far for, to find injustice everywhere, it's right? Actually terrible. Like I was reading about the galley slaves that the Ottoman empire um, used to steal from Western Europe the other day, like, for 500 years and it was so bad that um in western europe in france and spain and the british isles and up north that there were no like seaside villages because there was so much marauding and stealing of slaves from from village communities uh, seaside communities yeah and they were brought brought back to to turkey area or as galley slaves that was the military innovation at the time that um allowed them to dominate the Mediterranean area was uh, 
uh, galley ships, which were rowed by slaves, and they would be chained to their oars until they, they died, right? Humans, huh? Really bad. Really, really bad. Well, so my brother, he is very, um, he's very, uh, I, I don't know if he's convinced he's pretty, feels pretty strongly that we were genetically <clears throat> created between an alien, a hybrid of an alien race and um, whatever proto proto humans were on the planet at the time. Mm -hmm. And he points to various you know, scientific um, arguments for this in terms of, uh, I guess, something in the DNA that he thinks cannot be explained otherwise or is well explained by this. And also um, just the, the fact that we're the only creatures on the planet that wear clothes. And he says, we're basically wearing space suits all the time. These are our space suits. <laughs> I like, I like that idea. Yeah. Where I'm in my space suit. Cause we're all. Yeah. So that's another explanation for that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear it. It's Do you know Neotny? Have you heard of Neotny? Neotny. Uh, N-E-O-T-E-N-Y. I've heard the word and I can't, I can't think of what it means right now. What is that? It's when uh, the characteristics of a juvenile are retained into adulthood. And so human beings are neotenous primates. So if you look at a baby chimpanzee, their facial structure is very human-like. Right? And so... Characteristics of neotenous animals, mammals, are hairlessness, um, uh, sociability, sort of um, um, the the sex sex drive is is uh, moderate, right? It's controllable. Um, all, uh, cooperativeness, all kinds of, of human characteristics, are described by um, in. Uh, neotenous animals, mammals. The, the tendency to roll on one's back and show one's belly. That's one. <laughs> but also hairlessness, so we need to wear clothes. Mm. Huh. Yeah. And that's the uh, neoteny is so, it's a very rapid resp response to environment. So if you take uh, a group of children and raise them in an environment where they have to struggle to survive. It'll only take a couple of generations before they turn feral. They, they do this with animals. Uh, whereas if you take a, a group of children from a feral environment and you put them in an environment where they, um, they don't have to struggle to survive, they can, they have enough nourishment, they have enough peace and quiet space, safety, uh, within a couple of generations, you get people with big brains who've, who are quietened enough to be learning all kinds of things and cooperating. And you, so you can you can see this playing out in the world as well, right? Where yeah. are more neotenous. Some groups of people are more neotenous and some groups of people are less neotenous. So uh, it's really obvious between men and women that women are more neotenous than men. Mm -hmm. more sociable more cooperative yeah. right etc less mm -hmm. density less what less 
less bone density. We have less brow ridges. Hmm. So what do you think, what do you think accounts for that? What's, do you have any thoughts on that? It's nature, isn't it? It's just nature. And is this more, does this play out more in humans than in other species in terms of male, female? Are there other species where the female is more neonatus? Uh, maybe not. It's hard to say. Like the most neonatus animals are the domesticated animals and the cats and dogs, of course, right? But so you can imagine thousands of years where males are selecting women partners for procreating who look young and healthy, right? So there's a, there's a, a tendency to choose women who are young and healthy. So the women that look young and healthy are more neonatus, and they're the ones that are having babies. So wait, so the women who look young and healthy are more neotenous because neoteny is an expression of youth characteristics. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's interesting. I also, one thing that I've noticed or felt over time I, is um, humans in general and males and females, I would say, and also perhaps males becoming more neotenous themselves. There, there's, um, there, I remember, this is great, I used to live at this Zen center in Cambridge and um, had uh, a Croatian friend downstairs and she was talking about, uh, she was talking about my boyfriends yeah, that she'd seen over time. And she said, Kate, you know, you're, you're always going out with these boys. You need a man, you need a real man. You know, and I was thinking, you know, so it's all, she's talking about um, all of these kind of hairless, scrawny musicians, <laughs> right? That's, uh, yeah, that's- The male, what, right? What's that? Male waifs and metrosexuals. And what you'd call the metro term metrosexual wasn't even uh, used back then, but you know, that would be getting into that category or sorry. So I think of that as being not necessarily so much a musician, but more a professional class, tightly groomed. Um, but she was definitely noticing uh, and she was talking about how she'd see them on the subway and how they're just, you know, just these. And so her husband is this guy named Bill from Brooklyn. And he was just a tank of a guy with like a flaming red hair and uh, on his elbows because he'd been in the military. And in Japan, he'd gotten demon faces on his elbows. And he was in the Marines, actually. And he explained that this is the demons watched behind you on your elbows. And so, you know, so she had her real, real man here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I did end up um, marrying someone much, much more of the real man body type eventually. So, so she did get her, uh, she did, she did get her point across, I suppose, in one way or another. <laughs> 
It, it might just be maturation, though, Kate. Like you get a little older, like it could be. <laughs> but it's but I, you know, uh, levity aside, it is. Um, there is, I think, something to <clears throat> the neoteny. Uh, do we call it a neoteny epidemic? <laughs> Let's do because then we can make it, you know, a panic about it. No, just the, the phenomenon great. of neoteny in, in general. Project, I'm thinking. What's that? That would be a great art project is to start campaigning about the neoteny epidemic. Yes. Oh my gosh. Right. Make it a real cause. Start to do guerrilla, guerrilla tagging of uh, sides of buildings. Neoteny epidemic must end. Um, but the, also a general thing that I've noticed is adults seeming more juvenile in general. Um, and I don't know if this is just when I was younger that the adults at that time seemed older, but I don't think so. I mean, there's, there used to be more of a division between youth and adult. And I don't, I don't know, I don't think it was necessarily good in all ways. However, I think, and I find this in myself too, I do not exclude myself from this in any way. I feel like I am in a, um, in a prolonged adolescence. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think about my... Um... My aunts and uncles and my grandfather, my grandfather was a very serious, hardworking man. And my, my uncles uh, went into the forest in outside of Wells, BC in, in the gold mining area. And they cleared the land and they built cabins, a cookhouse, a bunkhouse. And then they started working with heavy equipment and just like, <laughs> and mining gold, right? They just went into the bush and then set up this huge operation and were mining gold. And I'm like, well, they were shooting deer and, you know, preserving meat and all of these things that seem like so impossible for me. Like any, any of the adults that I know, it's like, what? Like, you can do that sort of thing? And, and it first occurred to me when I was, um, like, this difference between our generations uh, Maybe 10 years ago, I watched um, A Hard Day's Night, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. And while I was watching it, I was thinking about what my grandfather would have thought because my mother would have been a young woman at the time that it came out. And he might have seen it, but my mother for sure liked it. Uh, and he would have been appalled at these adult men acting like 10-year-olds. Mm. We've been just appalled, like, what is the world coming to? And that was like in 1963 or four. Yeah, yeah I, I would see the the Beatles as being models of adults who were adolescents. I mean, as as powerful or um, influential as any of them were individually, they did. They definitely did not have that adult. There's just not a break. I don't think anyone of them ever came to really seem adult in my, I'm making finger quotes right now, way. 
Yeah, I, I think they were meant to be imitated. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Well, I just want to interject this point because it's very rich. The thing that you brought up there, Kate, was a kid art is the phrase that I discovered for 16 Maps of Hell, the, the adult that never grows up. And it seemed like you were juxtaposing it with the fact that children grow up too fast. And I was seeing how those two, because you were saying the line between adult and child is disappearing. Right? So it's coming from both ends. And, and there's a clearly a direct correlation to that, because if children are uh, prematurely sexualized and, and given too much freedom and responsibility, they don't ever get to grow up. It, it, it sabotages their development. Well, you, you don't have, um, you don't have the uh, initiation rituals either in the same way that you've had in the past and you've had in other cultures. Uh, things that clearly demarcate the end of childhood and the beginning of like, adulthood or sexuality. Like confirmation. Did you get conf your confirmation? Yeah, but I mean, for me, you know, I was, that was all nonsense, right? From what I learned at home that didn't have any, you know, that didn't have any meaning, but the, yeah, you went and you put on, did I even get confirmed? I must've. I think you wore a dress and you got money from relatives. So a white dress, yeah. Yeah. But uh, but I'm thinking more of a you know, more hardcore rituals of um, of uh, coming of age that maybe you'd have in a tribal culture, something that is less of a um, uh, just a teenager party and something that's more, a little bit more of a uh, proving of one's own inner resources or the things that would, the things that would really uh, determine how independent you are. Because I mean, I think that is probably <clears throat> the essence of adulthood independence and inner inner resources being able to, to call on your inner resources rather than relying on the parent or the adult in the room autonomy autonomy because hmm. independence is problematic because it suggests being isolated i think yeah <clears throat> yeah that is it that is a better word yeah, and so have any of us or do most of us actually become autonomous adults in this time? You're both shaking your head. You can't see shaking heads on podcasts. I've met one out of allegedly 8 billion individuals. <laughs> Wait, 8 billion not autonomous, non-autonomous adults? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a pretty rare thing in the West these days, for sure. Yeah, but it sort of brings us back to the opening subject of religion. There's, there's the identity and then there's the negative identity. So we're not autonomous because we get socially conditioned. But, but the, the ingenuity of the sociocultural engineering is, is that the parents, they're carrying a pathogen of cultural indoctrination, which you know we can see back to it still as it was a religious thing that was oppressive, 
but then the, the, the society itself provides the supposed anti antidote, which is just the negative image. So we go from from a culturally parentally conditioned identity, false identity, to a culturally uh, manufactured <clears throat> negative identity. I think it has to do with narratives too. So, like the thing about a, a, um, that that family you were talking about, and the the how what their values were and how they were living, it was informed by the narrative of the Bible and their understanding of the Bible. But the, I mean the the social engineers know the power of narratives, so they give us narratives that function in the same way for us. So it's not just negative identity, but we also are living the narratives that the culture gives to us in the same way that people who believe in the Bible are living narratives that the Bible gave to them. I think there's, there's a key here in that the Jesus gospel narrative, as Gerard writes, is supposed to end mimetic violence. It's also supposed to end the law because it's in the gospel. Christ brought grace, so there's no need for law anymore. But because also, you become your own. You, you become a moral person. You discover autonomy. So you, you, you become an imitation of Christ. So, so mimetic violence is replaced by divine mimesis, let's say. And then the third thing that gets cancelled out here is the narrative. So it's a narrative that ends narrative. Because if you identify with Christ, Christ is the son of God. Well, that's infinite. So there's really the early alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of everything. This is where David Sharma's thing comes in right it's 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 post-christian but it's it's the transcendent embodiment of christianity in a certain sense i'd say um and uh the the male female thing relates to this that is occurring to me around what was going on recently with the online events with dave when the man woman question came up around Christ and the apostles, the, and, and some one participant brought in Mary Magdalene as the female Christ, and it occurred to me, oh, well, that, so there's something there where some of, some of these women who feel oppressed by this so-called patriarchal religion and the narrative that it's all male mostly, they want to identify, they want to find a point of identification in the narrative. Uh, and so they want to create a counter narrative in which there's the female Christ and Mary Magdalene and power, blah, 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 right? But and that's, that's, yeah. that's because they're disallowed for, by feminism uh, of identifying with Christ. Right. And the point about Christ is he does transcend sex. That's right. Transcends humanness, essentially. He's, he's, he's a feminized male, like the, an yeah. embodiment of compassion. He was the original metrosexual. It's a slippery slope, though, right? I'm just, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm kidding, but I'm, I'm not totally kidding. I mean, he's the, I don't know if you've ever watched The Simpsons. Um, Maggie Simpson becomes addicted to, uh, uh, well, she's, she's, she's compulsively calling the Corey line, which is like her teenage heartthrob cultural icon, you know, and it's. Yeah. I was having a dollar a minute or something and she's bankrupting the family and it's at the same time she's um gotten into these magazines called uh the title is non-threatening male magazine <laughs> which is exactly it you know and that is he's the christ is the um prototypical non-threatening male uh, this version that's been but but, but apparently he's not because david sharon's version is threatening to 
some people. Well, I, I, I would say from my experience growing up with um, the story, Christ's story as a child, um, <clears throat> looking at it from that, uh, that moment in time, totally non-threatening. But I think it's threatening. Um, I don't, I think that there's a difference between Christ being threatening, you know, the, the image or the, uh, the appearance of Christ, Christ figure, Christ energy. The difference between that, I separate that Wow, how can you really separate that from what the religion became? Because we receive Christ through the interpretation of Christ presented in the Bible, which is... Uh, I mean, we receive um, the idea of Christ through that. Receive the, you receive the idea of Christ. But what so, about the experience of Christ? Like, if you were to meet, if you were to experience a man who is embodying Christ's energy, would you find that threatening? Hmm. Uh, I, I would certainly hope not. I mean... Because that would be, that would not be Christ then. Don't you think you'd find it triggering though? No, no. I think that it's, um, I think that it is. How, how would Christ deal with your false identity without triggering you? Yes, I, I see what you're saying there. Abs I, I think that Christ could use certain um tactics to point my attention to my false identity and thus uh, trigger trigger me by um, re having me realize how much my identity is constructed by both the narratives that I've been given and the counter narratives that I uh, am involved with that reject them and all of those layers of religion and culture and my own kind of orneriness. And um, yes, so I think that Christ probably would, um, would be holding, it's holding up the Zen mirror, I call it, or I think of it in that way. But when I when I'm triggered by that, I am I am uh, I'm trying to keep an awareness of the fact of being triggered in that situation because it is um, it's all part of programming, whether that programming is external or internal. Can we have internal programming? Can we program ourselves? Definitely in your nervous system. So I, um, I was just going to point out that I think the constructed identity, it's not just rational socialization. It, it's actually like an emanation from your um, reptilian brain. That's it's intent on sur your survival. And so it's literally like a, it doesn't have the capacities of the um, prefrontal cortex and the newer mammalian brain. It's reptilian in nature. 
And so it's very limited and it's fierce in its defense of itself. And it wants to live. And that's in your nervous system. When I, what I was finding triggering, uh, was the idea of things being in, in the way Dave was talking about these narratives. it was feeling to me like things were being prescribed and proscribed. And that is what I was thinking, we, you know, all right, what's going on here? This is, uh, this is different than what I thought I was signing up for, right? This is, um, so am I just being given another, another rule book here, right? Sorry, there's a there's a crew doo doo passing by. I said I don't think there's any way. Just as I was saying, there's no way not to be triggered by an embodiment of the divine. I don't think there's any way not to be triggered by a confrontation with our nature and with the the uh, reality of nature or the in uh, in uh, incontrovertibility and in uncircumnavigability of nature. You can't get around it. 
there are we don't have the words for them because they're not rules we've got the laws of physics but i don't even believe in that you can say biology there are there's just a natural configuration to existence which includes the biological i mean the biological is the most manifest and visible and mappable but it's also psychology there's a configuration to the psyche Mm -hmm. and then there's a configuration to the soul Mm -hmm. which we don't know anything about so i think if somebody and the collective soul. If somebody enters into our field of experience who's more in tune with the, the law of matter and the law of the soul, uh, it's going to be, it's going to feel like we're being imposed upon to the false identity. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word, imposed upon. Because that also goes, well, it goes against, certainly goes against what, Michelle, you were talking about with um, the liberal identity of progressive liberal identity of everything is allowed, right? And everything you you must not question or limit anything. Yeah, the only thing you're allowed to judge is the judgment of others. Right? Yeah, right. Yes, you can go ape shit on that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's some there's you know that's that's going to swing around at some point. That will fall out of fashion. It's happening. Yeah. Hmm. It's um it is Yeah, so I went from the Catholic. Well, it was never I can't really say I was ever really an active Catholic aside from being raised in that or schooled in that and having some of it make sense to me and some of it just seemed totally superfluous. Um, but from that point, I went on to, um, to Zen Buddhism, which I think holds a special appeal for anybody or for many people who have been in a rule-based system to come to something that is um, a, a, a process, a process rather than a rule book. And so there's Zen Buddhism and also Krishnamurti, who, similar in the ways that, you know, you, everything has to, you, everything has to fall away. You have to just confront what is, but even within Zen Buddhism and different types of, maybe Zen Buddhism less so, but different types of Buddhism, certainly um, there is, uh, you know, there are, there are these elaborate stories, elaborate rules, elaborate myths about, you know, what constitutes hell, what constitutes the various realms of being, probably rules for rebirth. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of metaphors. It's um it's a it's a tricky Mm, not tricky is the wrong word. It's like all all road, but your all your maps go away. 
some point because you religion provides maps then when you start seeing flaws or discrepancies in maps or you just see that one map doesn't agree with another map and eventually you just realize you've got to go and you've got to explore the coast yourself you have to map it yourself yeah, I, I'd say <clears throat> that's right, but we, we forget that, like at the height of uh, European Christianity, there wasn't a difference between the society and Christ, like religion wasn't out there, that you practice out there, it was how you lived over here. So right now we live in a world where, where religion is practiced over there in that way, and the, the society we live in is functioning in the same way that Christianity used to function, right? We just don't, but it's very much so. And it's, um, it's giving us the maps now, including well, authority, authorities are giving us the maps and it's, um, and what is branded as science and what is branded as, um, and celebrity, what's that? celebrity pop culture, um, television, like all, Grocery stores, it's all, it's all telling us what the map is. Everything that is provided for us by something larger than us, whether that thing that's larger is the news media, whether that thing that's larger is the Nabisco company, you know, you just anything that's put in a package in one way or another. It's professionalized and it's sealed. You know, we get a little sealed packet of... Um, how to look, we get a sealed packet of something to consume literally into our bodies. Yeah, what to value. A seal, yeah. And it's all, you know, once it's been produced and sealed, we are, we are, we have become ultimate consumers. We have become completely identified with being consumers and completely comfortable with consuming when it comes from something that um, just seems larger than ourselves, that seems professional, that seems like an authority. You have a population of, of, of children, adult children, where we look to authority you know, we're, we were raised in schools and this isn't just public schools, this is anything. And this is universities in particular, I would say. I would say this intensifies in universities. And the more you feel that you are in a place where you can go and uh, think for yourself, the more you are inside that box that is defined by the boundaries of what can be argued. And, you know, that's a Noam Chomsky idea, but I've even heard it argued that he, he himself sets those boundaries. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he, he comes along and the first time I heard that, I thought, ah, oh, this is brilliant. Yes, this explains so much what we are allowed and not allowed to talk about but 
it's like you just because he said it doesn't make it go away at all it's almost like the magician you know the that another thing my brother talks about are things that are manifested these days are have to be revealed because that's part of the magic of them right mm -hmm. and so when it's made public it's um people think oh well that's not secret anymore and they consent it's a way of yeah it's also consuming too like yeah. what's that it's also part of consuming so everything's set up for us to consume so i yeah, yeah you're passive yeah and and the things that are revealed to us that we think yes like, now i'm really finding out like the virus came from wuhan this is uh, from the drama right and even consuming an idea like that from noam chomsky yeah it's yeah i'm still i'm still being told that and there's nothing there is nothing in the world as it is in terms of at least my experience of what I would consider to be contemporary global culture in the sense that we're tied together by um, what comes through screens, unless you are very remote somewhere. Um, there's really nothing that encourages people to discover for themselves. It's discouraged. Huh? What's that? Discouraged. It's discouraged. Discouraged. Yeah. Discouraged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actively discouraged. You said. Yeah. You're. You're. You cut out right at the beginning, and it sounded like encouraged. No, actively discouraged. Yeah, and so why would that be? Why would be we be actively discouraged from from discovery rather than learning? Learning from what's come before. Why why? What do you think? Well, it was rhetorical. Yeah, I was just feeling into it and feeling the expansiveness that like how pertinent that question is. We just yeah, it, it, it is rhetorical, but yeah, if you have any thoughts on it or it brings up anything for you. It brings up the crypto matriarchy for me. <laughs> I, I want to hear a little bit about the crypto matriarchy. I can't, I'm looking. Hopefully, yeah. But we brought it up because what controls us has to remain hidden. Otherwise, you can't control it. Doesn't work. This is the Norman Bates thing for you. You think this is the good poster poster boy for crypto matriarchy, right? I wanted to try and encapsulate the whole thing in an image so that I wouldn't have to talk about it. But also, it's in 16 months now that there's still, I think, all the components there in that last chapter that. <clears throat> I somehow had to pull out of the ether slash my own psyche subconscious trauma to finish the book, like the last map. Because I thought I had to end on an exit, but I realized I can't, I can't, I can't include the exit in the map because then it won't be an exit, it'll be another revolving door to hell. So then I had 
then I, instead of an exit, I just try to map the center, the very center of the societal hell that we're in. And it was Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Ed Gein? What is Ed Gein? I pre- Ed Gein was the model for Norman Bates. Oh, okay. All right. Yes, yes. Real life. Yeah. Also, the um, the serial killer in um, the J- Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, that guy. Too. Not the not the Hannibal, but not the Hannibal, other the other Buffalo one. Bill. Buffalo Bill, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so so that's I mean, I don't know. Did you include photographs? I can't remember, but so Ed Gaines was um actively involved for a long time, uh preserving um women's body parts to make like upholstery, clothing, belts, um and partly he got the women's body parts from women that he killed only a few, but they don't really know how many. But also because he lived close to a cemetery, so he would exhume the bodies of women after they'd been buried. Including his mother. Including his mother. So he was making like... A he, suit. He was trying to make a woman's suit. Do you feel, do you feel an affection for this? Um, I mean, an affection in terms of a... Uh, empathy. I mean, I feel when something, when you just said that, and especially when you said his mother, I felt a wave of, uh, of, of just such sadness for, because I suppose I think of this person as a child and uh, a feeling of having, wanting to Gosh, what is that? Go back to the womb if you want to get back inside your mother's skin. It's um, it's so, it's so profoundly, it's so profoundly sad. And this is um, something I've talked to some people about recently. People who are um, people who do terrible things. People who are just so so difficult and cause such trouble for other people through their lives and how um, how difficult it is to to see what uh, what their experience is and their their own internal struggle and to not release them from responsibility you know and that in this case of a serial killer, that person is certainly responsible for causing tremendous, uh, un- just incredible suffering. I and think- I would think, huh? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking. It's so difficult because there is something there's something at work in people who act things out whether it's just being a difficult person in life relying on others others too heavily um or actively going and harming or killing others i think i think the point that jason was trying to make and that he made in his book is that um, that 
people like Ed Gein, rare, very rare, um, they're at the far end of the spectrum, but this is, it's, it's a, we can use that to diagnose the larger problem. Yeah. Um, the crypto me, Yeah, so the majority are acting in these ways that are not so overtly pathological, but they're, they're, they're much more destructive just by virtue or by vice of being, you know, it's the majority, it's the collective that's acting that way. And it turns Ed Gein uh, into a, a cultural icon. Uh, as a need of that Zen mirror that you're talking about, it's kind of an inverted Zen mirror in a way because people aren't really recognizing it themselves in it. Um, and when you are, when you're saying that those people are responsible, Jimmy Savile is the one that comes to mind for me because you know I grew up with this guy and so I feel like I've got a pretty, pretty strong connection to him, his spirit, what have you. Um, the they're actually not responsible. If you think about the word responsible, would you say they're responsible people? Right? They're very irresponsible people. So, but they're accountable. Accountable is a better word you're saying. But if they were responsible, if they were able to be responsible, they wouldn't be acting that way because that's not a response. It's a, it's a pathology and it's a, uh, again, they're reacting. And so there's this spectrum, I think, of those who are being heard, the masses who are being heard into these socially conditioned false identities, and, and the aggrandizers who are asserting and affirming and consolidating their negative identities in a position of power. So somebody like Jimmy Savile is a better example than Ed Gein, because Ed Gein was really at the low end of the social spectrum. Who was, well, anyway, let's just go to Savile. There, um, uh, they're finding power and influence by the by the by the feeding and the asserting of that irresponsibility by the total refutation and negation of responsibility, and they're escaping accountability because they're they're part of a system that won't hold them accountable. That won't that won't harm the mechanical. Did you say? Won't hold. Them accountable on the mechanical because that's like protect our man at, at any cost. Uh, yeah. Also, um, Jimmy Savile um, apparently claims to he claimed to have spent five days with his mother's corpse, and he was a known necrophiliac. So he kind of boasted about it. So it's a similar connection. So. When you, you know, Jason, you talk about um, conspiracy being just coming from what emerges from what is rather than something that is created. Yeah, you know, the conspiracy sort of flows from the programming over time. And I'm just thinking in terms of what you're you're saying about. Um, the structures that support and allow a Jimmy Savile and protect a Jimmy Savile. Where is, where is the accountability in any of this? Yeah, it's in a literal sense, as in 
because everyone's accountable, but they're not necessarily being held to account. Yeah, but I mean, where... So if we think of it as a contagion, something that is a... Something that people are acting out on because it is... uh, it's a social programming in some way. And for whatever reason, they're not, um, for for whatever reason, they feel that this is something that they will do, that they will just do it. You know, most people would say, okay, maybe, or not most, most people hopefully wouldn't feel that urge, but, I say most people who would feel that urge would say, okay, I'm not going to do that. Would have a, you know, would have a. I mean, you have to feel the urge and be aware of it to say no to it. So there may be many people who have it in them. I would say everybody has it in them, but they're not aware of that. So they don't ever say no to it. So they might not end up like Jimmy Savile or Ed Keane, the sort of two ends of the social spectrum, but the same kind of pathology. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting to know. You don't have to be a member of the controlling elite to be a runaway, must-possessed psychopath. Mm-hmm. You can be at the other end of the, the social scale. That's how prevalent it is, completely across the whole spectrum. But the the, the, the large mass in the middle, they're not going to end up at either extreme kind of, it's the same kind of extreme behavior, uh, but it's still in them. So it's still coming the out. There, yeah. The potential's there. And then if the potential's there, it's more than just potential. It's it's coming out. This the unlived life of the parents. It's not just the things the parents wanted to do. It's also the things the parents were afraid to do, which isn't only good things, of course. Terrible things too, but we can just by not doing them doesn't mean that we don't pass them on to the next generation. So does this? And I would say that the grooming is going on all the time too. It's unrecognized as grooming. So do you? You go ahead, Jason. You mean grooming in the what sense? Well, as you start to climb the social ladder or you get some prominence and that you get invited to the Groucho Club and then you find out they're making pornography in the basement and it's all like... Yeah, so I think it's it's, it's, it's iffy to say most people anything about anything because we haven't met most people. But certainly in this context, we don't, I mean, we just don't know because the people who were involved with that, they, they they wouldn't be talking about it and they'd probably have a very charismatic facade involved a very sophisticated internal rationale where they their conscience is clean mm-hmm. yeah so so remember that jason and i both grew up close to this sort of going on so jason with jimmy savile and the yorkshire ripper in yorkshire when he was young and me in vancouver with the, the picton farm where women you don't know that, oh, for well i went to Quitlam High School in grade 12, and we were already hearing about the Picton Farm and the parties there. So that was in like 1980. So between 1980 and 2000, women were disappearing from the streets of Vancouver, and then the 
anyway, there's it's a very long story, but it was going on for a long time. And they finally were like, oh, look, there's something going on at the Picton farm. So they were, they had pigs, it's a pig farm. They had parties all the time. It was a nonprofit. Um, um, police officers from Vancouver and the mayor from Coquitlam used to party there. They had pig roasts. Thousands of people from BC partied there over the years. And they were uh, feeding, they were cutting up women's bodies, feeding them to the pigs, probably making snuff films, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it's horrible. And we all knew for a long, long time that stuff was going on at the pig farm. Thousands, like you, you just go anywhere in the area, like, did you ever party at the pig farm? They're like, oh my God, like, I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So it's going on. You just yeah. haven't covered it in your area yet. Well, so I think of as somebody like a, an Ed Gein as being of a different nature than a partier, partier at the pig farm. You know, and even maybe a Jimmy Savile. It's hard because once, oh gosh, it's it. It's this idea of um, harm to others as being a compulsion. I don't think that's right though, because in this huh? case at the Picton Farm, and even in Jimmy Savile's case, there was a lot of money involved, and also status. And some of those partiers were let in on the secret and participated and they were, right? Um, and even though people knew about it, people weren't talking about it. So this is, this is something that's still, sorry, cars again. This is something that does still challenge my, um, my ability to accept that it, it it seems um, it seems like too much. It seems too much to accept that this happens. Yeah, I agree. Huh? I agree. It seems like like it shouldn't happen. Like it's very hard to believe it. Mm. I mean, I've written all these books about it, and I still, I still, I still, I can't not compartmentalize. There's a one part of my brain and my body is aware that this is going on because I've just found so much evidence, but another part is just saying, no, I can't see it. Nothing could possibly be going on. So I just have to stay in that cognitive distance. And I think that the the problem is that when you're t when you're looking at something Okay, I feel like I need a I, I need a word for this. Something that is um, it is. I mean, you can say the phrase "beyond belief." It's um, it's uh, it's revolting, or I, I just reject it. I just reject the idea that, and I suppose it's comes down to myself right? Because these are humans, my fellow humans. And so I reject that in myself, right? I'd say, okay, I couldn't do that. So I can't imagine that other people do it because, or I can't imagine that 
other people who aren't special and sick do it, right? So hear about the isolated. So yeah, so this is, this is probably a central point with how this is either covered up or rejected or just protected. You have the model of this serial killer, which Jason, you also, I think, were, and people do question whether serial killers themselves are an actual thing or whether that model has been sort of put upon certain people in order to channel blame. I think a PSYOP and also a cover-up for drug operations. Something very organized that is then re re-narrativized as these random individuals, I think. Right, and so you say, okay, so this is a person, but this is a sick person. And, you know, I know that um, I've seen people who are sick, and I know I get sick, and I know seen some uh, psychological illness, so I can extrapolate from that and imagine that somebody could be sick to the point that, that of that extreme. And then that sick person does these things that are so, so terrible for other people. But then when you come to something, <clears throat> something like the idea of people becoming very successful and then being allowed into a certain um, uh, place in society where this becomes recreational, um, then, then one has to confront okay, well, that could be me then, right? If that's just regular people who are, happen to become successful, then that could be me. And no, I, I can't accept that I could ever do that. So that can't happen. I think that's part of the, that's part of the inability to, um, the tendency to reject it. And so if it is true, it, would be very, very difficult for it to ever come to light in that way, because we have every reason to not want it to be so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When the circus comes to town in the city of the vampires There's nary a soul to be found When the sun glints off the church spires And the citizens have all gone to their basements To wait for the night time in their coffin So you better Exercise the elephants Oh, while you can See the carved painted wagons with wolves Pace back and forth in their cages As they wait for a full moon to rise so they can shape shift into hairy bone cracking stages that will let them turn into normal 
so hungry vampires can suck their blood dry. Ah, oh, you better go exercise the elephants. possible that this also has to do with our different upbringings because if you were raised in a Catholic background there wouldn't have been much awareness well to the extent that there was a moral structure to your social conditioning it, it wouldn't have really given you any sense of the, that it was organized malevolence except in the Catholic framework that Satan could take you over at any time. And the pedophiles in the Catholic Church. Well, okay, that came later. Um, well, people knew about it for a long, long time in all kinds of places. They just weren't talking about it. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're really my point. So whereas for Michelle and I, it's really not that hard to believe because we grew up an environment that seemed, I mean, that we ended up thinking must be benign because they were our caregivers and our siblings and all the rest of it, and it just seemed, well, that's the world. But uh, it actually really wasn't. It was quite destructive. And and that just seemingly natural, quote-unquote, human proclivities and even just the liberation of them had this profoundly toxic and abusive aspect to it. And Michelle's case is active kind of, sadistic element in her her mother's behavior in my case it was more unconscious conscious there was definitely some sadism going on but i don't i don't remember what it was but um 
it was definitely there. So, so, so at a bodily level, anyway, it's not really that hard for me to to accept or believe that um, people are capable of really, really nasty things, and they've got some really sophisticated, socially sanctioned rationales for them. And also, a kind of blindness. Like I would say, part of what was happening with my mother's abusiveness was repetition compulsion so she was she was unconsciously reenacting things that were done to her um, and she didn't recognize it and to her it seemed natural and good even so there's like a split you can't if you're in a repetition compulsion you can't really see it for what it is and you can't see the harm that you're doing so I think lots of people are in that state where there's they don't actually see what they're unconsciously enacting on other people. Which brings us back to Norman Bates. I think there's an awful lot of data in, in that example. Because um, Norman Bates didn't feel responsible. He didn't even know he was doing it. He was he was a vessel, he was a tool, he was an instrument of something unconscious, something disembodied, and something ancestral and something dead and gone, but was still powerful in the world, powerful to wreak unimaginable harm. And do you think that this um this is the um the prime mover? I mean, do you think that this is the essence of what drives these behaviors something that is think about it this way kate the um uh the most when you're a, when you're a child when the imprinting is really the strongest how like your your brain and neurology begins to uh take the shape of your parents that you're attuned to there's an attuning that takes place and then the mirror neurons mirror each other so trans culture is transmitted that way. That's why autistic kids are resistant to enculturation. So for, but for most kids, there's sort of a direct transmission of neural patterns in the brain. And the, when you're very small, your mother is, the, is like a god to you, the, a goddess, the most powerful person in your life until forever. <laughs> like, so for, if you're a woman, you can identify with your mother and your mother's power if you're a girl child but if you're a boy you can't or you can but it gets complicated then if the father's not around so that the father's there you're like okay well powerful mother powerful father I can be a powerful man follow father but if the father's not there what do you have and so men are in this culture where the fathers are absent they're stuck in this this is my diagnosis they're stuck in this place where they're either stuck identifying with the mother too strongly or disidentifying with the mother too strongly. But so a push-pull. Or both, which is Edgeen non-based. He's killing women, but he's also... Trying to be one, yeah. trying to be powerful like his mother. Right? You can see that. Yeah. Mm. 
So um, I, I don't know if you ever followed Jordan Peterson at all. Um, no, no. Remind me of this. What was? You don't know Jordan Peterson? Thank God. How wonderful. <laughs> That's hilarious. Are you going to talk about the the soft female totalitarian? Yeah. That's the best point he made, in yes. my opinion. Yeah. yeah, and he and he he came up with it off the cuff. Somebody asked him about a, a feminist totalitarianism uh, when he was on stage, and he's thinking, "Well, I, um, he's a clinical psychologist and uh, infamous." Oh, I've heard I've heard of him actually. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he said it would be something like where uh, imposed absolute safety that would be a, a feminine version of totalitarianism rather than the iron fist it's the opposite it's the maternal instinct instinct expanded into a totalitarian um not prerogative but imperative everybody has to be safe all the time yeah well that's where we're that's the nightmare that we're living right now that's the mass hypnosis that's happening yeah. in this past year and a half and that almost nobody is questioning well some people are but probably a minority just as almost no one's questioning the men are in power what's i'm sorry nobody's questioning what the idea of the patriarchy and that men are in power and the men are calling shots you're saying that nobody is questioning that now? Well, yeah. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. All of a sudden, that's all fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that there's, I think that there's NLP involved here. I think there's, um, but, you know, maybe only to polish the apple. Yeah, it's, um, I think, so you're saying that this has been, this has been something that's, been inching in this direction for a very long time. Hmm. Kali Yuga is the Eastern. Yeah. Yes. Descriptor. Are we out of that yet? Oh no. Hmm. <laughs> 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 So we've come to the end of the world again. That's our standard place of ending up. Oh, it's not the end of the world because it's cyclical, right? True. It just feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. It could be the end of man woman. The end of man woman because it is conceptually inappropriate to limit. Well, just like Confucius said, that if you wanted to re-engineer society, you'd re-engineer, change the language. So when they change the language, it lets you know what they're moving towards. So if they're trying to eradicate the categories of man and woman, then they're probably yeah. eradicating the biological existence. Of oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're talking openly about that, about biologically re-engineering humans. You know this, Kate. Yes. I've heard a bit about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so to make that would be fit because huh? our biology doesn't fit the social model that they want to impose on us, so they have to change biology. 
How crazy is that? Mm, that's like the language virus taking over physical existence. It's it's tr it's so tricky because you can see how you know this this slippery slope of progressivism. You know that one should not be limited. One should not be judged. One should not be left out of any possibilities. Where that become something horrific yeah it's like they found the switch to turn off discernment and pushed it right like, right because the slippery you don't have to go down the whole slippery slope you know you catch on to a sapling or something on the way and you get up you don't just because a slope is slippery doesn't mean it's not navigable you can get up that slope but it's almost as if, oh, well, that's that slope. You, you're, that's, you know, yeah, you slide down to the bottom there. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. I hate that phrase. I hate that phrase. I don't know why. I have such a reaction against it's all good. I know that it's said in the spirit of niceness, but somehow I react. Oh, we're, not big, we're not big. We're not big big on the niceness ourselves actually <laughs> big on the niceness yeah yeah i think i think that there's um the niceness a lot of times comes down to i'm just harmless don't eat me right? it's also uh, an imposition from the the crypto matriarchy Hmm. How would you how would you break that down a little bit? Yeah, well, my mother was like that. She was authoritarian. She was liberal, progressive, authoritarian, uh, and she did insist that we always had good manners and that we were polite and kind and never did anything obviously hurtful or mean. But I just had this experience recently where you know the the story of what happened to our shop and the woman that took it over. So I, um, I, I've been doing some work on Facebook just to say like, we're going back to normal and I'm back in charge and stuff like that. And somebody said something that was unpleasant to me. And I, so I said something back that was also, it was definitely pushing back against what they'd said. And then another person jumped in and said, just be kind, just be kind, like stop being so mean. I'm like, what? I mean, anyway, I think it's justified to be like kind of distraught and angry in this situation. And maybe it's, maybe we don't have to be kind all the time. Well, <clears throat> I think that if you're, um, there's, comes back to passive aggression. You know, I think that sometimes being, measured and kind is actually trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm of the enlightened perspective here and I'm going to take the high road or something rather than just being honest and saying, you know, just saying something harsher that is, um, that is more, that is more honest and that will, 
that will communicate. It will communicate. It's it's not. Um, I would say that a lot of what goes on now is anti-communication. Absolutely. Yeah, tone policing, they call it. Mm. Oh, you. I mean, it's even in the post office in Hope where they have signs about being nice to each other and that sort of thing. Like you're, <laughs> they're so afraid of people having a real expression of frustration. They're like, mm. you have to be nice. You have to be nice. Like, don't be mean to us. I never saw anybody mean to anybody in the post office. So it's interesting, home. again, the juxtaposition of what Kate grew up with, found, found it and find it difficult, this idea of prescriptions and mandated forms of behavior. But there were only 10 back then, right? And now there's billions and billions of them. We're being micromanaged, micro-prescribed. And it's, it's control. It's it, So that's control from a vested exterior interest that is um that who in whose you know they have i mean it's slavery of a certain kind you know it's it's creating a compliant mass of people and that of course is voiced these days that it's for the good of all but i don't know it's that just, that seems a little unlikely somehow when you have people who still are who still are more um, who still have more than others and who are Mass- writing these rules massively. Um, I, I subscribe to um, the Design website, which is like a, it's the most popular designer website on the internet. So, it's like an online magazine, but the most prominent designers in the world are featured there all the time. So I get the news feed and uh, the, the, the kind of glamour and opulence that the, the elites, I mean, they're even starting to refer to themselves as aristocrats now, uh, that where they live, we can't even imagine it. Like if you, if you look at magazines from the 70s and 80s and what they thought was opulent then it's like it looks tawdry compared to what they're doing now it's unbelievable that's that's interesting yeah i grew up um from the time i was 13 i grew up in southampton long island and so that's very much the arist one of the aristocratic kind of areas and so i've grown up with this hyper awareness of um of the different cultural uh, I mean class of class social class wealth displays right wealth displays and um, the more overt and more subtle but even the subtle ones can be even more powerful you know you don't have to be ostentatious to be displaying your superiority and your um, relative uh place in the power structure it can it can be very um very small the ways that people express that and enforce that but i think people don't i just think people don't really realize this and my brother who grew up there too i'm sure that informs a lot of what he feels and sees 
but that is given a certain perspective that we share. It's a strange place, Southampton. It has, um, it has a Native American reservation there. It has um, a population, a um, fairly, I actually, I don't know now, but a relative, I think a proportion that's at least reflective of um, American population as a whole of black people. So, you know, you think of Hamptons as being rich and white, but it's, um, there is a very, there are different facets of the community. And then since I grew up and left, there is um, a very much growing Hispanic population. But I think all that makes it even more obvious how, how different parts of where, where power lay, lays, lies, lays or lies. And, um, and how that, um, how that comes through and how that little social dance happens. Working in weight service and landscaping and, you know, it's all, I don't know. It's, it's, it is messed up. It is 100% messed up. We are, <clears throat> we are a pathologically uh, misled group of group of individuals and we we absolutely don't know we do not know the play that we're acting in okay. it, it's so it's it's so pervasive and it's so elaborate and you know a place like Southampton you get all the ostrich feathers and elephants and everything and being a part of it you know they just mean in terms of the not literally, I've never seen an elephant out there, <clears throat> but just in terms of the ostentatiousness of it, and then all of the, everything that goes into supporting it. And I don't know, can you, it, it's as if people are hypnotized to think that this is, this is a way to be human. And this is reasonable, a reasonable way to be human. Even better, better than others, right? What's that? Transhuman. <laughs> transhuman, yeah, right. And then I think that's sort of the model for transhumanism pre-technology. People, people just taking on the role of being something. They're being different levels. They're just being different levels. It's, it is enacted and, and reinforced and and absorbed and all the time with this talk of like oh yes everybody's the same everybody has equal opportunity you can't do this the more talk there is about that i think you can you can uh you can understand the worse things are all that talk just goes to disguise the man behind the curtain. To what? All, huh? What's the man behind the curtain? That's the Wizard of Oz. The That's the end of the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, no, I know the reference. I'm saying, what is it? Oh, in here. 
the man behind the curtain is how totally how totally far we have come from living in the way that any other life form on this planet lives in a way that's connected to other life forms. Because that the man behind the curtain is a superimposed structure. Mm -hmm. It is a superimposed hierarchical engineered structure. So what if that superimposition is humanity, what we think of as humanity? Yeah, so, yeah, you're saying that this is just something that's always been? No, I'm saying that what if our idea that humanity exists or that people exist is, is that's the imposition? That, that it is something separate? Well, yeah. I'm saying, well, what if it's that profound? Because at that profound a level that we've been disconnected from reality. Because Dave's been circling mm -hmm. around this in the last few days, that the emotions we have, that we identify with and stitch together into an identity and the memories, and couldn't even talk too much about memory, they're coming from outside of us anyway. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about people, or when you do, what are, what are you talking about? Because what if there's just human bodies? Or, or yeah. even bigger, like an energetic flow, like we're representative of an energetic right. flow that includes all our ancestors and even like our yeah. microbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's, so it's the concept of individuality, essentially. Perhaps not, not quite. Humanity, though. It's what? Of humanity? And humanity, because it's the you know, people, the, the Marxists were opposed to individuality, and then yeah, yeah. yes, uh, I think I see what you're what you're saying. Just humans, humans as distinct from other from other human bodies, but the identity we're talking about identities, aren't we? Like everybody's classified yeah. an identity. Uh, and and so it's all about it's all identity politics. It's all about the rights of the identity. It's not even the individual because if it was the rights of the body, hmm. we wouldn't be doing the things we're doing to our bodies. If we really hmm. recognise that the body and the organs of the body have rights, quote unquote, which means that they have natural needs. Yeah, we wouldn't be living the way we're living. So it's got nothing to do with the bodies. That's the transhumanist thing. It's to do with the identity, the false identity. Yeah. Yeah, I see. It's a kind of a meta, a meta form of our embodied selves. Something that's made is simulacrum, maybe. Well, yeah, that's the, the modern, the postmodern, literally perspective, which blends with science fiction and the Matrix and all that. The East, you know, the more traditional view would be, de you know, spirits that possess us or ancestral. Uh, energies or hungry ghosts, or you know, hmm. much, uh, many interpretations that predate uh, digital culture. This is bringing to mind for me um, the idea as, of Dave as the sentimental burglar. 
And a number of years ago, I had um, I was in the process of trying to write a rock opera, which I never never really came to fruition. But one of the uh, one of the characters in this rock opera was uh, the sentimental burglar, and he was a guy who went around on a skateboard, and he would find people who he was trying to free, and they'd break into their house. And he would steal every, steal and destroy every single object of sentimental value as a way to wipe, as a way to disconnect them from what he saw as a um, inauthentic uh, identity. So I think there's maybe Dave as a sentimental burglar. All right. When did right. What's that? You have this idea then. This is a new one. Oh, no, no, no. I had this idea when I was in my 20s. Was he called Dave, though? What's that? That he's Dave? Was he called Dave back then? No, he was just called the sentimental burglar. Bringing the two together, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just occurred to me now. That's, that's, uh, maybe that's, maybe that is, maybe I found the sentimental burglar in real life. What have I manifested here? still out there he's still listening to this podcast there are 10 more to go before the the changeover is complete accomplished working on a new website be migrating from horticulture into a new realm directed towards interaction services support grounding heaven getting back to reality I will be updating the loyal and the faithful and the committed on the process, procedure and the progress here in Galicia, Spain, where the birds and the bees live free and healthy lives and we can too.